in the past, the coach has always been like, look, you got to put your time in and work hard. Your time's going to come. But now nobody does that unless you have parents that have honest conversations with their kids. Guys are going to keep jumping ship and parents are going to keep saying, oh, this is BS. You need to leave. That was former BBNN standout Rhett Weissman, who played professionally through the 2021 season next on the Base Path Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. We're back for our first Base Path Podcast of 2023. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, alongside co-host Matt Feld. Today's guest is one of the greatest prep school baseball players in the history of New England baseball, former BBNN standout Rhett Weissman. Rhett went on to play for a national championship team at Vanderbilt before becoming a third-round pick for the Washington Nationals back in 2015. He played professionally through the 2021 season. Rhett, happy new year, and thanks so much for joining the pod. Guys, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, what made me think of you, I remember we touched base, like, it was early days pandemic. I want to say it was only a week or two. I don't know if you remember our conversation, but I reached out just to kind of get a sense of what guys in minor league baseball, how you were feeling, what you thought that, how you thought that was going to play out over the next year or two. And I thought back to that conversation a lot because you were pretty much spot on. You thought it was going to be a problem that they were going to be cutting 42 minor league affiliates. You thought the pay was going to be a big problem for a lot of guys because at the time, only six organizations had even committed to paying minor league baseball players. And you thought it was going to end up cutting a lot of careers short that might have otherwise maybe even reached the big league level. How did that kind of play out for you over the next year or two after that on March of 2020? Well, Dan. One of the things that I've come to learn uh, about minor league baseball and decisions that are made is it's very easy to predict what's going to happen. All you have to do is think about what is the right thing and the commonsensical thing to do, and then choose the exact opposite of that. <laughs> You'll get what the teams end up deciding to do. So it's easy to tell the future when you look at it that way. But no, of course, I, I mean, when you, when, there are aspects of that year, of course, that are totally out of team's control, right? They're not the ones that that brought on a global pandemic. So the things that were in their control, I thought that they screwed up mightily, just kind of in the name of minor league baseball in itself. But there is nothing that can be done about that complete loss of year from a developmental standpoint, right? You think about all the guys, myself included, who are in the athletic prime of their lives, who miss that whole season. And as a 25-year-old a or a 23-year-old or a 22-year-old, that's one year that you don't have to showcase your growth and to develop to becoming into a major league player. So it, it's tough. It, it's really tough. And I know I was down here in Nashville. At least I was fortunate enough to have other pro guys around where we could get together and work out and we could do things to try and make it so that year wasn't a total waste. But if you weren't one of the lucky guys that was on the taxi squad, you, you can only create game-like environments so many days a week or at so many times. I would like to say the Nashville Sounds were probably, and Vanderbilt University were probably our, our biggest saving grace in the sense that the sounds let us use their facilities 
every single day as long as we wanted, which was incredible because it was one of the only places that was open at the time. Right. You, Dan, touched on it, but going back to your high school days, you probably have the most impressive resume for a prep school kid that I can ever think of in, in the Northeast. When you look at your accomplishments, your four-time All-League, you were Louisville Slugger All-American, you were Perfect Game All-American, you were the ISL MVP, the Massachusetts Gatorade Player of the Year. How did you kind of handle that success early on and and kind of how were you able to stay in the moment, in fact, that you were still a, a high school kid in some respect? That, that stuff was great. I was never really focused on all the accolades and stuff. All I wanted to do is win. I think back to high school, I don't think about the, the awards and the honors. I think more so about the two ISL championships that, that we won and, 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 and winning and, and those team environments. It's funny because you don't ever think about that. The second I stepped foot on, on Vanderbilt campus, that stuff might was was gone and it didn't help me at all in the fall when I'm hitting about 086 with what felt like 500 strikeouts. So you can't take that stuff with you. But I was fortunate to play on some really, really good teams. I, I look back at some of those end teams that we played on. We went undefeated in 2010, unheard of in that league. But I played alongside a lot of great players and I was just kind of lucky to to be in that mix. Even in that league, we had some unbelievably good players as well. Guys like John Magliozzi, who went to Florida, guys like Tyler Beattie, who I played with at, at Vandy. So a, a lot of really good other players in that league that, that kind of helped me rise there. I wonder how your recruiting situation played out compared to what you see today. Like I, I wasn't covered the prep level or college level as much as I am today, back when you were at that level. And now it's, you announce your commitment on Twitter and you get whatever, 500 likes and constantly showcasing, constantly putting, oh, hey, today I threw, I did a crow hopping through 96 and do a tarp. Like everybody check this video out. How did yours play out and how did you end up committing to Vanderbilt? Yeah, back then, so I committed to Vanderbilt following the end of my sophomore year, which back then was unheard ofly early. Now you have guys that if they're not committed by their sophomore year, they're, what's wrong with them? You have these kids that are committing in middle school. It's just madness. But guys, the, the biggest difference from 10 years ago, I mean, more than that, I was being recruited, holy cow, I'm old, 14, 15 years ago to now is... There was always a balance between finding players who were really good and, and had tools and finding guys that could compete and knew how to win. And Tim Corbin at, at Vandy, and, and we had some unbelievable recruiting coordinators, Matt Holliday, who's now the head coach at Oklahoma State, who recruited me at Vanderbilt after him, Travis Jewett, who, who, who was an incredible recruiter as well. Those guys were able to look at players and say, okay, the tools are there, but can they win? Do they know, can I look at them and, and see their toughness or see how they interact with their teammates? That idea, as far as I'm concerned, no longer really exists for a couple of reasons. Number one, kids now, it, it's hard to find high school kids that are as tough as generations in the past. And, and I think that a lot of that has to do with just the times that we're in and, and how everybody becomes offended at everything. I, I think of some of the teams I was on and some of the things that we did years and years ago and what would happen if, if, we, if teams did that stuff now. It's sad. It's unfortunate. But when I think back to, to what got me to Vanderbilt and 
what Coach Corbin said to me in his office before he offered me a scholarship had nothing to do with how hard I threw from the outfield, had nothing to do with, with my hand-eye coordination or how far I could hit a baseball. It was, hey, we think you'd be a really good fit for our team based on how you've interacted with your teammates, based on the tools that you have that we may or may not be able to develop in the future, but more so your mentality on winning and what we see from you on the field from a competitive standpoint. And the way that the recruiting's built now, you have to take chances on guys way before they're developed. You're committing guys out of showcases where guys play on 15 different teams and they play in 10 different showcases. They, they don't even know their teammates' names half the time when they're going to tournament, 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 different team, different team, different team. It's just created a different environment that is so unique and, and strangely different from when I was going through the process. And sorry for the extremely long-winded answer. Right. You had a, a standout college career, but you, and you alluded to it a lot just now in your answer in terms of the type of person and coach that, that Tim Corbin is and continues to be. I read a great story in the Tennessean about an instance where you were asked to sacrifice bunt on two back-to-back occasions, an 00 count, 01 count. You didn't get the bunt down either time. You hit a walk-off home run on the 0-2 pitch, and then Tim Corbin didn't exactly still give you a high five walking around the bases. He was so pissed that you didn't get the first two bunts down that he wasn't pleased even with your walk-off home run. Can you describe just what it was like playing for Coach Corbin and just the relationship maybe that you still have with him? I mean, my relationship with him is, is incredible. And I see him all the time. I live about half a mile from Bandy. I can see it out my window right now. But Corbin is one of those guys that expects the absolute most out of you at all times. And if you're a player like myself or like a lot of other guys that I played with, championship caliber players, you are constantly wanting to get better. And everything is about winning. And, and that is the culture that he's created over there. Now, not only did Corbin not want to give me a high five when I was rounding third base, but he also didn't talk to me for a week. And when he did talk to me, the first words out of his mouth, I can't even repeat on, on, on this podcast. But it was about basically telling me, hey, that's not going to cut it. When we're playing against LSU in the SEC championship and you need to get a bunt down to win the game, you're not going to be able to hit a home run off of, at the time, Chris Cotton, who's a left-handed specialist back in 2013, who leads the SEC and saves year after year after year, right? You're not going to be able to do that stuff. So you have to get the fundamentals down. And everything that we did at Bandy, which again, speaks to Corbin and the culture, you don't do things until you can get them right. Everything that we did, we did until we couldn't get it wrong. So we would bunt for hours and hours and hours and hours until we could do it with our eyes closed. Pitchers would do PFPs over and over and over and over and over again until they couldn't get it wrong. Everything that we did, infielders would turn double plays to, to, the, the, to boredom. And then as soon as you could prove that you could do it, he would add in something to make it 10 times harder. So what we would do was, whether we were doing outfield communication, infield communication, back picks, PFP, whatever it was, we would have these gigantic subwoofers and Corbin would turn them up so loud to the point where your, your, your brain is shaking in your head. And once you proved you could do it without them, then you get those going. 
And now you have to prove you can do it where there's no such thing as communication because nobody can hear a thing. You have lights flashing in the backgrounds, you have sounds, you have noise, and there's so many distractions. But what it, what it ended up doing for us and, and training in those sort of environments, when we got onto those big stages and we were playing on a Friday night in the SEC at Mississippi State in front of 22,000 people who all, all hate you, or when we were in Omaha in front of 36,000 in the national championship title game, you don't even feel it. You, you've played in environments that are so much harsher than that, where you can slow your heartbeat down and, and be successful. And all that is based on the culture that he's created over there. I know you've been a critical. I was going through your Twitter, which was entertaining. And you, you've been critical of the NCAA for a few different that, that I will get to the transfer portal. I want to ask you about that. One thing that I wasn't sure how you felt about it, the NIL stuff, because in New England, it's not really as big a deal up here. There's not guys at Northeastern or Harvard or any of those schools that are getting NIL deals. But I thought I remembered like during your Vandy days, didn't you have a fan base of people who just sat out in the outfield with you and were just like huge fans? I was thinking like, maybe you could have made some NIL money when you were at Vanderbilt. What do you think? Yeah, I, I had the Rhett Fielders who yes. were my right field fan club who are the best ever, who I still see all the time here in Nashville. But guys, with the NIL, it's, it's a huge issue for so many reasons. But the biggest reason that I see when you're in college, you take these kids who are between 17 years old and, and 21, in some cases, 22 years old. And you have to take those guys and put them in a locker room. And that locker room has to create a, such a high amount of cohesion where you can create a championship caliber team. And that is so unbelievably hard to do. And that is so hard to do because you have guys from all different walks of life, from all different parts of the country, in some instances from other countries. You have so many new factors. You have guys who are developing. You have an incredible workload on your shoulders. You have an incredible baseball sport load on your shoulders. You're working out for the first time in your life four or five days a week. There are so many things going on. To add in, hey, that guy in the corner got 500000 in cash to come to school. Hey, that guy over there is driving that brand new BMW. Hey, they paid him $2 million to come to school. That stuff can't harmoniously exist in a college locker room because guys aren't mature enough to handle that. Now, in pro ball, when guys are 25 to 30 and, and the guy next to you signed for $10 million and you signed for a million, it's a lot easier to understand that and cope with that. But when you're sitting next to one of your peers who's the same age as you, who's done just everything that you've done, and they just signed for a million bucks and they're spending their money like, like, like it's on fire, it's, it's going to be extremely hard for these teams to create successful cultures when some guys in the locker room have made a ton of money and some guys are still on meal plans getting $40 a week. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. 
Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Rhett, Dan, let me know beforehand, and of course, I had about 10 minutes to research about your poker prowess, which I know this is a baseball podcast, but I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't touch up on it. I'm always jealous of, of people that are very good in poker. My my good buddy is like in the shadows is a great poker player. He like, we'll hang out and then I'll leave at like 11 o'clock to go to Encore, the casino here and win thousands <laughs> of dollars until four in the morning. How'd you kind of get in and, and how much was, I feel like minor league baseball players and college players always kind of pick up a hobby on the side. How much did that kind of play a part in it in that respect? Yeah, guys, I, I've always been entrepreneurial and, and I think part of being entrepreneurial is, is having that little gambling instinct, right? Because a lot of time entrepreneurs, they, they gamble and create it creating businesses. I've always liked poker. I've always played with guys. I've always been on teams with guys where we play cards. And then as soon as I started playing pro ball, it got a little bit, I started reading books and I started really studying the mathematics behind it and the statistics behind it. And I enjoyed it. And, and when you're traveling around and there sometimes aren't any other things to do than go to the casino, I learned very quickly that playing blackjack for 10 hours a day wasn't going to be the way, right? Guys are going to the casino on the team and they're losing all their money playing craps and roulette and blackjack. There was another game that I could kind of take more seriously that I could play for a long period of time and, and I was actually pretty good at. So I started playing more seriously in 2016 when I was playing low A and we were about 45 minutes away from a, a real dump of a casino in, in West Virginia. But I learned how to play. And then you kind of fast forward eight years, seven years, and I, now I go to Vegas two, three times a year. I play in the World Series of Poker every year. I play in a lot of huge events and I play a, a lot of high stakes games, which I love. It's fun for me. I enjoy it. And, and I'm able to get out to Vegas a couple times a year and, and take advantage of that. I'm sure I they miss you in that West Virginia casino. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I was li I listened to that a barstool podcast that you did about playing in the World Series of Poker, and they asked you what skills kind of translate from baseball to poker, and you were saying it was just kind of playing the odds. Like you, whenever you're playing poker, you're trying to when the cards are in your favor, you're going to push your money in, and when they're not, you're going to leave it alone. And baseball was a little bit like that way too, in that you're always looking for the right pitch, and sometimes it's playing the odds on the right count. If it's two zero, what are you looking for that way? I also, just the focus required, like, and being present. I think in baseball, everybody complains about the time of games. Oh, it's a four hour game. I can't watch it. But if you're playing baseball, like it doesn't, you're not thinking this is, I got to stay focused for four hours. You're just in the moment and you're totally focused. And I think that patience and that focus probably translate to poker. How is it that you, I mean, I, poker goes long. He was saying 10 to four in the morning, but sometimes you can be playing for 12 hours. How is it, how are you able to kind of stay in the moment for that long? And do you train yourself for that? Dan, that's a great question. When I get out to Vegas and, and I'm playing with guys that have 40, 50, 60 millions in, in earnings at the same table that I'm at, one mistake and you're done. It's over. So you never know when that is going to come. It's the same as baseball, where you might not get a play for four hours. You might be in the outfield. And then all of a sudden, in the bottom of the ninth inning, you're going to have to make a throw from right field. 
to save the game. It's very similar to that. You're, you're constantly, it, it's just like a pr- in between pitches. You're not really paying attention. Here comes the pitch. You're locked in. You're not really paying attention. Here comes the pitch. You're locked in. It's, I've been doing that my whole life. So for me, the only difference was, okay, I know how to focus for extreme periods of time and still have those seconds where I can leave and, and give my brain a quick break and then get back to it. The only difference here was, believe it or not, poker is more intensive because the game now, the game, quote unquote, is now four times longer. I am sitting in the same seat sometimes for 12, 13, 14 hours a day in some of these high stakes tournaments. But now I don't really have that break in between pitches. So once I fold and I have a hand that I don't like and I get rid of it, I have to study everybody else at the table and try to see how they play certain hands and try to see if they have any physical tells or or if they do anything when they have certain cards in their hands that are going to now help me. And it might not be tomorrow. It might not be the next day, but it might be on day four of a tournament when I see them at the final table. So a lot of things that I learned in baseball, trying to see tells when a pitcher comes set. I'm trying to see what kind of pitch they're going to throw. Very, very similar. There are so many aspects of playing high-level baseball that are right there with high-level poker that I think for me were just so instilled in me that it was a kind of an easy transition to, to get really good really quickly. You alluded to it when, when Dan first asked you about when you guys had last connected during the, during the pandemic, but I'm curious your perspective now, kind of on the outside a little bit more in terms of the relationship between major league players and its union and minor league players and minor league players now, of course, in the process of mobilizing and unionizing on their own. And that's been a, a hot topic over the last year or two years or so in particular. What's your sort of perspective in the, in the aspect that many people have always believed that major league players maybe weren't really looking out for minor league players? They were kind of only on their own, bargaining on their behalf, maybe not taking minor league players along with them and sticking up to their rights because they were only interested in getting their rights and collective bargaining agreements between themselves and major league baseball. I'm curious if you feel like major league players can be more influential than they have been over the years in helping ensure that minor leaguers are, are treated more fairly. I think with anything, I, I think that you have a percentage of, of major league players who, well, I kind of know this, who care, right? They, they want the best for the minor league guys because they sympathize with minor league players. You have guys like David Price who gives hundreds of thousands of dollars to minor, every minor league player in the organization during COVID gives a thousand dollars to everybody over 200 players for nothing, just because he knows that they might be struggling. And then you have guys like Ryan Zimmerman, who in, in 2020, when the nationals were cutting our stipend significantly lower, he bands together against the ownership to get guys together, to make up that difference, to make sure minor league guys do get paid. And then you have guys that don't care on the other side of that spectrum who don't care. It's not, it's not their concern. And I understand that as well too. And in that major league union, the major leaguers understand that the more money that gets sent to minor league players is less money in their pockets. And that's just business. So I understand both sides of it, but there are players that do care about the minor league players. There are players that don't care. And I understand both sides. I think it's on the owners. Like, if you think about your you, baseball is not like basketball and it's not like football, like football, you draft a guy, he can, he can play at the big league level. Yeah. I know it's the NFL, but you know, he can play at the highest level right away. Basketball, they have the G league, but a lot of the first round guys are playing on the NBA team 
they're on an NBA roster right away. For baseball, it's a longer development period. You're even when you draft guys out of college, it's you know three, four years where you have to invest in their development so that when they reach the big league level and where you're selling all the tickets and concessions and everything like that, I think that it's worth the investment for the owners to say like, hey, who cares about gate receipts in a minor league game? We need to have them ready when they're at the big league level. So we're going to invest more at the minor league level than other teams. And that'll give us an advantage. Do, do you think it's an ownership issue more than a player issue? Who should be fighting for these minor league guys? But Dan, again, you're, you're not doing the right thing because you're making too much sense. It's what you're, what you're saying is too commonsensical. <laughs> You think about it, right? You have owners, they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars every single year on the draft, right? Right. And when it comes to their players in the seasons, the food sucks, the living arrangements suck. And then in the off season, guys don't get paid. So the majority of guys have to get jobs. And I'm not talking about the first rounders, the second round guys. I'm talking about everybody else. Mm -hmm. So if you don't sign for a million bucks, you're getting a job, a lot of guys. And every minute that you're working, I've had, I can't even tell you the amount of, of players that I've had. And keep in mind, a lot of them don't have college degrees yet because they got drafted out of college or most of them have high school degrees. In the off season, they can't go become something that pays a lot of money. These are guys that are loading trucks that are helping out at florist shops. I mean, some of the jobs that I've had people that you know, my friends have done, guys that are, are driving Uber, guys that are driving for Postmates, jobs that take a lot of time to make money. And if, it, if they don't take a lot of time, they're physically demanding and the risk for injury goes up. I had a, a buddy of mine who would load up trucks for dicks, sporting goods, and he would be routinely carrying these, these 60, 70, 80 pound boxes. And he, he blew his back out trying to make money so that he could pay for a trainer. And so that he could pay his dues at the batting cages and go there at eight o'clock at night. When you, if you're trying to build players and you're trying to develop players, they have to make a living wage. You can't have guys have to work eight to 12 hours, eight to 10 hours in the off season, and then also expect them to come back to spring training in fantastic shape, eating good, working out good, taking care of their bodies, seeing physical therapists, getting massages, all the stuff that professional athletes should be doing, right? You're, you're basically telling guys, okay, well, nope, in the off season, it's on you. We don't really care about what you're doing, but you, when, but when you come back here in March, you better be ready. You better be looking good and you better be ready to play. Otherwise, we're releasing you. It just doesn't make sense. It, it's not how you build athletes. At Vanderbilt, you had the opportunity to play with a couple of other local kids. I think Will Toffee and Ben Bowden were both at Vandy. During your time, Vanderbilt certainly has recruited their fair share of Northeast kids over the years. Jackson Gillis, Dominic Keegan, Ray Velasquez. I'm curious what you learned about and what you've seen over the years between your teammates that were maybe from the Northeast or from a similar part of the country that you are compared to teammates that maybe were from a totally different demographic, totally different background, whether it's even geographic, and, and your, your take in general on, on players that come from the Northeast. So guys, the one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb that always did was toughness. It's not even a question. A lot of the guys up North, we only get to play a couple months a year. We know what it's like having to play in freezing cold conditions in March and sometimes even April right? New England. So we're battling through adversity all the time. A lot of guys up North, there's a very rich culture of, of football 
and hockey and tough sports, which a lot of us have played. So getting down to Vandy and getting down there with guys who were from different parts of the country who might have just played baseball or it might have been 70 degrees or 80 degrees all year if they came from Florida or or California. You have a different toughness level. You have a different idea of how to play through adversity, how to play through through snow flurries. Um, those guys that I played with, I mean, they're beasts. Adam Ravenel was another one. Mike Yastrzemski was another one. Tyler Beatty on top of Bowden and, and Toff and those guys. And, and there's just another level of toughness there that when we go down to, to Nashville and in February, it's 50 degrees and everyone's freezing. For us, it was like summertime. We'd never been able to get out in February. There's still usually three feet of snow on the ground. So having that toughness level, but also the pipeline of, of Corbin being from New Hampshire originally and having the, the ties to New England, those are the guys that he wants. He wants multi-sport guys who are, are used to playing in conditions like that, who are tough enough to when they come down to Vandy, that can rub off on other guys. They can use that mindset of being able to overcome adversity and it can create even add to that toughness culture that Corbin loves to build. You can you can just hear how important the camaraderie and the team building aspect was to you when you were at Vandy, when you were in college. And I said I wanted to ask you about the NCAA transfer portal because I think some of that's been sacrificed. Now you see guys, even when they make commitment announcements now, they're like, hey, my next four years. And you read it and you're like, well, let's wait and see. It's not always four years anymore. It's It could be one year. You don't like it. You're gone. Just to give a quick summary. When we were in college, it was, if you went D1 to D1, you had redshirt for a year. You could do D1 to D3, but uh, there was, I don't want to say it's a punishment, but it was kind of, you were trading a year of a, a redshirt season to make a move like that. What do you think about that change that that no longer exists? You can just go D1 to D1 and play right away. Honestly, I think it's an embarrassment. I think it's, I think it's shameful that the NCAA would allow that. They have totally bent the knee and catered to the kind of world that we live in now, which is if you don't like it, that's okay. You can leave and uh, find something better and you're the best and you don't ever have to work for anything, which is the culture that we kind of live in right now, which is sad. It's unfortunate. You, you look back at, at, at the teams I played on at Bandy and you look at my freshman year at any given time. I was so fortunate to get in and play, but you could take a screenshot of any game and you would find me on the bench. You'd find Dansby Swanson on the bench. You'd find Carson Fulmer on the bench, hopefully praying to get in the game. You'd see Walker Bueller unable to get in the weekend rotation. You would see guys like Xander Wheel, who ended up being an All-American four-hole hitter and hit 35 home runs at Bandy over the years while I was there, sit on the bench and ride the pine sitting right next to me. If we had left any of those guys, we do not win a national championship the year later. And we certainly don't go back and play in the national championship final game the next year. We don't set the all-time record in SEC wins. We don't do any of that stuff. We don't win 200 games at, at Vanderbilt, which we did. We won a hundred and I think, my goodness, I, in the three years I was there, we won 156 games. It's almost 60 a year. It's outrageous. But if you can't keep those guys together, you can't win. And if there's never, if you never have to fight to get in the lineup, you never have guys that know what it's like to compete. 
And if you can keep bouncing and bouncing, I'm seeing it all the time, seeing it every day. I mean, I look at these Vandy teams. I look at the past year or two years and there are players on the team. I, I, I sit and watch practice and I say, wow, that guy's going to be so good. He just has to bide his time, develop. He has to learn from the superstar that's in front of him. And then his time's going to come. And when his time comes, he's going to be a rock star and he's going to get everything he wants. That is going to be a first round guy or a second round guy. He just has to wait his time. And in the past, that's what happens. The next year, the older guy gets drafted and now it's this guy's time to step up. Now, they don't even get to that point because if they don't play or they don't play as much as they'd like to, they just leave. They transfer. And then that group never becomes the national championship group. They never end up getting to where they could get to. And the team never really recognizes their full potential because you have people jumping ship when they're not playing. I think that it fits into the showcase mold. It has nothing to do with, with winning teams. You can't build winning teams when you have guys do that. But again, I, I think it's the culture and I think it's the NCAA giving into that culture of if you don't like it, leave. It used to be if you don't like it, guess what? Play better. If you don't like it, work harder. Now it's okay if you don't like it. Mommy and daddy will help you transfer and you can go somewhere where, you know, where, where you think you're, you're good enough to play every day. What I don't understand is that like the Vanderbilts, the Virginias of the world, these programs that have already asserted that they've been the best in college baseball for the last 10 or 15 years, the way, they've, the way that they go about their business, the way that those coaching staffs go about their businesses working. I don't understand how players and families think going to a different program is going to be better for them when those programs that they're choosing to play in, right? You mentioned it, but they're pretty much choosing playing time over being part of a culture that's probably going to make them a better person in the long run, right? Yeah. And that's really tough. That, that's tough to, for 18-year-old kids to realize. 18-year-old kids can't see that. That is too, too mature of a decision, I would say, for, for most 18-year-olds. Now, of course, you can find, you can find kids that, that have that maturity level, and there are a couple. But in most cases, I think that the overwhelming force to transfer is coming from parents. It's coming from parents who are saying, look, you're better than this. You can play every day or this program is BS. You should be playing every day. The guy playing over you stinks. And the parents have no clue because they're not division one coaches and they don't know how to see unbiasedly past their own child, which in the past, the coach has always been like, look, you got to put your time in and work hard. Your time's going to come. But now. Nobody does that. There, there is no, hey, I just got to wait it out and grind and grind and grind. And, and unless you have parents that say you need to get better and, and have honest conversations with their kids and say, look, you're not good enough to be in there every day. You need to get better. Until we start having those conversations, guys are going to keep jumping ship and parents are going to keep saying, oh, this is BS. You need to leave, unfortunately. Rhett, last question for you. Um, I know I mentioned earlier you played through 2021. You look like you could still play today, but I saw on your Twitter page, you're, it says retired. What do you think your future is in baseball? Obviously, you have so much passion for it still. Baz, I love it. And, and it's the reason why I still live within walking distance of the field. I, I get fired up. I'm over there all the time. I have so many friends that are still playing in the minor leagues and in the big leagues. So, you know, 
I love it. And, and at some point, I'd love to give back to it. I work the Vandy camps every year. I try to work with guys as much as I can. I have a couple real estate companies that I have built while I have been in the minor leagues that I've kind of taken over full time. So it's been an easy transition for me. But as far as baseball goes, I try to stay as involved as I can. I try, I try and stay as involved as possible with um with issues that are going on in the minor leagues by being on the board of, of, of the minor league advocates groups, as well as work with guys who are, are just getting in here to Vandy and, and trying to spend a lot of time with them when I can. So as much as I am out of the game, I am trying to stay as in the game as I can while still moving forward with my life. Well, I could tell you, if you ever wanted to have a future in broadcasting or being an, an analyst or something, you could definitely do it. But I can tell you, if you do, there's not as much money as an, as real estate or poker. So you're probably doing better this way. Well, yeah, Rhett, thank you so much for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. <laughs>